Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How's it going? It's going great. Um, how are you doing? Doing great. I'm enjoying this weather. I know we always talk about the weather, and uh, but I, I'm so loving this weather, and we're in March now, and I feel like, knock on wood, that maybe we're past the point of getting a lot of that white stuff in, in this winter. We've had like such a, a pretty uneventful training season, so happy about that. Me too. I've actually been thinking about this though. And I know this sounds weird. While I hate the white stuff and I'm so happy it's not here. When we do have weather events, it forces everyone to take a step back and have a little bit of a down week unintentionally. And I think sometimes that prevents people from overcooking before a race. So I'm just so we should all think right now, like we haven't had that. So maybe it's a little time. It's time to, we're six weeks, a little over six weeks out and kind of do a self check of like, how's my training going? Have I been going high intensity the whole time? Because I haven't had to work around weather. Yes. Yeah. Good point. Uh, um, And, and we don't want to peak too early. It is so easy to peak uh, in about two, three weeks, but the race isn't in two, three weeks. So really be mindful of that and, and managing your training and recognizing that, um, nobody wins in training runs. We say this all the time, but it's worth a reminder, but no, it's totally okay to take a recovery day here and there. And just know the, the goal is to get to the start line, tiny bit under train, yeah. not healthy at all over Yes. Healthy. Most important. Yes. And this is also the time when things pop up and, Right. You're, you're already well-trained for at this point. And yeah. most people, I mean, I know there's exceptions, but if you've been training consistently since January. You could run it in a couple weekends if you needed to. For yeah. sure. So this is kind of the holding pattern now. The stay yes. healthy, stay, stay the course, to keep your eyes on the prize, but, you know, focus on the day-to-day and just get done what needs to get done to get you to the start line healthy. Yes. And if you have a tune-up race plan to assess your fitness, don't put too much pressure on yourself. If you feel great and you want to go, you know, balls to the wall and and run as fast as you can and see your fitness, um, fine. But if you're at all feeling fatigued or a little something is nagging you, then use it as an opportunity to run your marathon pace. Um, just because there's really not a huge benefit fitness wise at all to running a shorter goal race during the training cycle. It's more psychological. Yeah. I like to use them as like a cut down run too, like kind of a practice for, mm-hmm. for your actual race day. Like go out and see if you can start at like, you know, close to marathon. I mean, it's a little slower than marathon pace, maybe then kind of cut it down as you go um, and, and use it as that opportunity. Cause that's also psychological, like training your mind and your body to start out easy and finish strong. Right. So speaking of which, starting out easy or intending to and finishing strong, but that not really happening. Mm -hmm. Wow. The Olympic trials Uh, this weekend were so exciting to watch. So many good lessons from them. We watched them together at your house, which was really nice with some other runner friends. And it was uh, so many good lessons to take away. So many. But before we get to the lessons, there was something that a lot of the runners who have been on podcasts um, this week, I tried to listen to some over the week just to hear the sort of the back. I hate even saying the back of the Packers because they're all so fast, right. but the, the, the more common runner <laughs> who was running this race, the mere 330 something right, marathoner, the the top, uh... they were all saying that they had every intention of starting the race slower. And then like you just mentioned, kind of decreasing their pace as they went along and the excitement and they the rush. Out. 
Yeah. And so. Well, and look at the field too. It's just like any of our races here, like RCA, I think I mentioned last mm-hmm. week, it's such a fast field that the temptation and the inclination is to get pulled out too fast. You don't even realize it's happening. Yeah. So with Boston, one advantage is that you're seated into corrals, of course, based on your bib time, but maybe you've gotten faster or slower since you, you received your bib based on your qualifying time. So even more important to really try to tune into lock into your pace and what your race plan is and to really not try to get carried away by what people well, are doing around you. Especially the adrenaline and the downhill start. I mean, that's yeah. going to be, we'll talk about that as we get closer to Boston, but that is the very typical scenario is to go out way too fast. And, and the Boston course is not it's not someplace that you want to do that. So we could talk for hours about the Olympic trials and and we know there are so many great podcasts out there that are covering them. But I just, I want to ask you, Lisa, um, what are, um, for you, what was one of your, tell me your favorite story or from the Olympic trials? I, well, I just thought that the takeaway for me, the, the big takeaway for me and the big um, lesson that I look to is that um, the three women that ended up placing on the team were not... Slate, they weren't in the list of names readily, you know, when you rattled off, when we, anyone rattled off the list of names, um, they weren't in that list of names. Um, I thought it was amazing. They were all women who had had challenges uh, on their <laughs> journey to, to this great accomplishment. But what I thought it showed um, was that on any given day, anybody can have a great race or anybody can have a disappointing race. And it doesn't reflect on your ability as an athlete. So some of these top runners that were, were, you know, shoe-ins or, or everyone was talking about them making the team who didn't, it doesn't mean they're not great athletes. It just means that that, that one particular race, the, you know, two and a half hours that they were out there on the course, it just didn't, that it didn't work out the way they had planned or hoped. It does not reflect at all on their abilities as athletes. And I think that can apply to anybody. We look at, you know, our races as sort of the that's the culmination of all our training. And we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to you know, hit a certain time a lot of times. And then we may go out and not hit it. And that doesn't mean that our training wasn't worth it. It doesn't mean that we're not good athletes. It just means it didn't come together that particular day. So that on any given day, really anything can happen. So I, that that was kind of my big, big uh, takeaway from, from the trials. Love it. So what about you? My takeaway... Um, we, we wrote up about it on our um, Facebook page and our Instagram account was the top five runners were injured yeah. at some Coming point back from injury. and had to take off lengthy periods of time. Um, the Each one of them had some sort of challenges you mentioned, but beyond that had to stop running, not for a week, not for a month, for several, several months. months yeah. And they all came back stronger from that and were able to achieve such great things. I um, think that maybe the reason they did so well is because of that, not in spite of their injuries, but because of their injuries that really built mental toughness. And uh, I, I just think I have a feeling that that played a role in in their ability to, to have a strong race on a hard course. Oh, for wind. sure. I mean, number four, Des, she didn't have necessarily the same story as the other, the other four, because she has, I mean, she, I think she broke her femur, she broke her femur at some point, she had the um, flu, but so she was, had the know. flu during this training yeah. cycle and had to take a couple was off for at least a couple weeks. Um, so she's a little bit of the exception because she's a really consistent marathon and has been for quite some time, but she too, over the course of her, her 
lifespan as a professional runner has had several injuries where she's had to take significant time off. Um, but Molly Seidel, I mean, what a story, Cinderella story, her first marathon ever. And she is very public about her eating disorder and she had to stop running. And then Sally having a baby and, and anticipating coming back from that as we all do as moms thinking it, that we'll be able to be on this plan. And it doesn't necessarily work out the same for everyone, of course, because our bodies are all different. And then, you know, Alephine, unbelievable. I mean, she really came back at the end of the summer and she didn't run all summer um, because of her injury and made beanies called resilience beanies as a result. (laughs) Um, The stories were incredible. And um, I just listened to a podcast. It's, it's older. It's not from this week, but it was on the podcast running on um, Mm -hmm. OM where um, Molly was interviewed and she talks very openly about um, her struggles. And it's a great episode um, if you have a chance to listen. And we're actually going to be doing a podcast panel with the host of um, running running on um, And that's a coincidence. I wasn't trying to plug that, but I think it's so cool that she did such a a great job, Julia, the host on that. And I think um, if anyone's interested in learning more about Molly and her struggle and her story, that's a great one to listen to. So speaking of struggle, um, there's a lot of talk this week and we would be remiss if we didn't mention it. Of course, we've got this situation going on with the uh, coronavirus. Yeah, and internationally, we just found out that um, you know, from one of our runners in Israel that the Jerusalem Marathon, which is coming up this month, has been postponed to October. So instead of canceling the race, they postponed it. So races all over. I mean, this is obviously a bigger issue than than just races. But you know, from our perspective, looking at looking at scheduled marathons that are coming up, certainly a question in our minds and all of our uh, friends that are running the Boston Marathon as to what is going to happen to the Boston Marathon. So a lot of anxiety. Yeah, we're going to do our best to to do some investigating and try and figure out a way to get information when it when it becomes available, like everyone else. But we'll, we'll, we'll work on that and see what we can come up with. And maybe we'll have a guest on the podcast, maybe maybe to talk about it. Um, I, or I not think, talk about it. Yeah, I, I think too that even um, you know, nobody knows right now. Right. There's really no way to assess what the situation is going to look like in five or six weeks. Um, and and there are so many considerations that go into staging a race, especially one like Boston. It's not just the runners; it's the volunteers, it's the medical staff, um, it's the travel, it's the hotel industry. There's it's the so resources much, to the city. The resources mm-hmm. to the city, right? It's not necessarily the call of a race director nope. either. Uh, you know, the state, the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are so many other factors that go, and I think it's probably impossible to make any predictions now. But it's definitely a topic of conversation and a source of a lot of anxiety for people, especially people if this is their first Boston and they're looking at, uh, you know, talk and rumors of possibility of cancellation and just thinking about that's a lot of uh, anxiety producing. For sure. So we, um, we always say on this podcast and to our runners as well to control the controllable. So we can't control the situation, but there are some things we can do. And um, we are really happy to have appropriately this week as a guest on our podcast, sports psychologist, clinical psychologist in Denver, Colorado, Dr. Justin Ross. And that is the first question we ask him. So um, after we're done here and we throw um, the podcast over to Dr. Ross, he will share some of his advice on how to handle that anxiety with respect to conversations about potential cancellations. But 
we were talking earlier, and, and we're just going to throw this tip out. Look, if, if any of our listeners are feeling anxious about this, and if the source of anxiety is not just the potential disappointment, but also I have all this great training and I really think I would have a great race. And I, I or maybe you need another BQ for next year. Right. I mean, we don't know what, if it was canceled, what, how they would treat this year's BQs, but maybe you don't have a fall race and this was, this was going to be your chance to get another BQ. Yeah. So if you want, feel free to sign up for a backup, backup plan, backup race in plan your area <laughs> that doesn't require a lot of travel. That's low key. That is certified course. Yeah. I mean, you, if you're okay with the sunk cost of a, a race entry that you may not use, but it's going to bring you a little bit of a sense of release, relief and control, then go for it. So that would be yeah. our today's tip. Right. And, and don't <laughs> worry about the things that you can't control because yeah. there's nothing's going to change whatever is going to be the ultimate decision. So keep training, assume that everything is going to go as planned. And like you said, if, if, if it helps to feel like you've got a plan B in case the, that that happens in case there's a cancellation or something happens to for the marathon this year, then then at least you know you have you have a backup and you have another another goal another target. But also step back and look at like if it's canceled, there's a darn good reason. And our, our running the marathon is is really kind of a minor uh, you know minor consideration in in terms of more like global health health and wellness. Yeah. So People staying healthy. So. Yeah. Well, Lisa, I think it's time we turn it over to Dr. Ross because uh, this is a fantastic conversation. And yes. For know. even if, if you're not running a marathon, his tips are applicable to any anything in life. So we had a great conversation with him and excited to share it with everyone. Have a great week, Lisa. You too, Jewel. Bye. Bye. We are so excited to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Justin Ross. Dr. Ross is a clinical psychologist in Denver, Colorado, who specializes in human performance. He works with athletes across disciplines and ability levels, ranging from the recreational athlete to those performing on the world stage to develop high performance skills aimed at peak performance. An adult onset runner himself, Justin is now an 11-time marathoner with six BQs and a personal marathon best of 257. His masterclass, Unlock Your Athletic Potential, is now available on the Insight Timer app. Welcome, Justin, to the podcast. Dr. Justin Ross, thank you so much for coming on the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we are really excited. We first heard about you um, when you were a guest um, on a series on the Another Mother Runner podcast series on uh, becoming a strong, mentally strong runner. And you really have a talent for distilling uh, what sometimes could be complicated concepts into simple information that runners can take away to improve their um, training and racing. And that's why we wanted to have you on the podcast today, because we are now about six and a half weeks away from April 20th, the Boston Marathon, and we wanted to have you on to provide some guidance to our listeners, anyone training for spring marathon, so that they can be as mentally strong as possible between now and on race day. And what we love is that you are a marathoner yourself and an experienced Boston marathoner, so um, we love and appreciate any specific tips uh, for preparing for for Boston. So um, we wanted to kind of open up by asking why would 
um, somebody who's not a pro runner, an elite pro runner, but a recreational, although competitive, because um, most of us training for marathons and especially Boston are competitive. Uh, why, why would somebody like us need a sports psychologist? And what does that process look like when um, somebody would want to use a sports psychologist? Yeah, no, no, great questions. And I think it's such a great setup, right? The spring marathon season is right around the corner. And, and in order to perform at our best or achieve the goals that we're setting out for ourselves, we have to be both mentally strong and physically strong, right? So I think that the starting point for me is um, really in anything that we set out to do in our lives, it, it begins in the mind, right? So that, you know, the first time we tackle a marathon, that starts as a thought. This idea of like, I want to go and, and see if I can accomplish this. And then as we run more and we become more accustomed to that distance and pretty soon, you know, the challenge increases, right? I want to see if I can run faster. I want to see if I can PR. I want to see if I can get to Boston. Um, and that all starts in the mind, right? That's uh, this mental challenge that we create for ourselves. And performing well requires the same type of setup, right? The In order to perform well, not only does our body have to be strong, but so too does our mind. And that may require you know, that we become aware of some of the obstacles that, that we face um, in our training or some of the difficulties that can pop up in our thinking habits or in our thinking patterns and then be able to um, to work on those things. At the same time, it's about like being able to create this um, this really strong, internal, credible voice so that when it gets hard, not if it gets hard, but when it gets hard, you know what to do in that moment, right? Um, and often it's like tackling that moment in your mind is, is so important in what comes next, right? The mind becomes the tipping point for whether we uh, whether we maintain pace or we speed up or we slow down when when we face a challenge or when we start to, to peak. Yeah, so what does that process look like? So let's say I, I'm listening to this podcast and I say to myself, I think I, I think I would like to at least engage a sports psychologist to help me through some of my difficulties with respect to training and racing. How does that work? Yeah. So, I, I think, you know, one of the starting platforms that I use with every athlete, whether that's, um, you know, I'm coaching a big group or doing a talk or working with somebody one on one is um, nothing changes without awareness. Right. So you cannot change what you're not aware of. So the very first place that we start with every single athlete, regardless of ability level, is to generate an awareness platform of what's happening in their own psychology right, in their own thoughts, both before, during, and after runs, right? Uh, one of the beautiful things about, like, this awareness platform is, like, it, it doesn't really require that you um, that you add a whole lot to your training. Um, it's just about bringing a different attitude and a different level of awareness to what's already happening. And from that platform, from bringing that awareness, you start to get a sense of, like, where you are really strong mentally and where you can maybe use a little bit of work to uh, again, to, to change things, or challenge things or approach things differently in your mental setup. So would that be something where, let's say someone is aware that they have um, severe race anxiety. I'm just making a generalization. Would would that typically look like something in terms of the process where they would work with a sports psychologist um, on a weekly basis? Or is there a, like a sometimes a one session? How does that work? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a great question. And it is so variable. Um, I think that the best outcomes come from people who start to work on this in advance. 
right? So right now we're sitting about six weeks out from Boston. So now is really the time to start to lay a good foundation for uh, for mental skills to be ready for that race. Um, you know, it, it's interesting in, in the fall, you know, like when we have all these fall marathons happening in October, I start to get a lot of calls sort of early to mid-September of people wanting to come in and do one session to get mentally prepped for their race a couple of weeks later. And th there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's okay. We can get some work done, but it really is best if you um, if you implement this throughout your training sort of weeks in advance. And for somebody who is aware of like like race anxiety or uh, like putting a lot of pressure on themselves, like starting to learn strategies to calm that response, both in mind and body now, right? Six weeks in advance gives you a chance to really practice these skills and really dial them in so that when you get to race day, you're really prepared, right? You have a, a, a game plan and a set of strategies that are well-worn um, and well-utilized that you can access, you know, like during the tape. Well, we love that you brought that up because that's a really great segue into our next set of questions. Now that we've kind of generally talked about the process and that is, we're preparing for Boston and spring marathon. So as we prepare, we want to talk to you about a few scenarios or sources of anxiety that generally runners have right now and what guidance you can provide in managing these scenarios. So we're going to give you a, a, a few and you just, just help us work through these because they're, they're likely things you probably see in your office a lot. So here's the first one. Ready? Yeah, the, the potential cancellation of Boston, because that has been <laughs> a topic yeah. a lot this week. And we're guessing yeah. that you have heard that as well in your circles. So talk to us and tell yeah. us what guidance you can provide to runners who are starting to become anxious about that. Yeah, yeah. No, no, totally. So um, as we sit here right now, I've, I've had a lot, a lot of athletes are running L.A. Uh, this weekend. Mm -hmm. And that has been the topic of conversation as well, this um, what happens if they cancel. So, <clears throat> again, one of the ways we're going to we're going to broaden just a little. Bit, right. So um, the potential cancellation of Boston is uh, could be a huge anxiety producer for people. And one of the ways we work on anxiety in any way, and it's important to think about this sort of generally first, is um, anxiety in the mind almost always starts with the words what if. Right. And so like that's how this thing goes. Like, What if they cancel the Boston Marathon this year? So the starting point for helping work through that anxiety is to um, be aware and to, to be able to catch the what if thinking and to understand like, OK, that type of process of thinking is probably going to lead to some type of anxiety response. OK, now the second part, like the cancellation of Boston would be um, really impactful on a lot of us. Right. For a couple of reasons. One, we value the race. The, the race means so much to so many people. It is of high value. And when things that we value deeply are threatened or the potential to be taken away, we start to worry and we start to get anxious. Right. So if we go back, you know, last year, we go back to 2018, you know, we started to see the weather patterns and, you know, a week in advance, a couple of days in advance. And the race itself wasn't threatened, but our outcome was threatened, right? Like, what if this weather really impacts my ability to perform well? And again, we get worried about that. So again, so when what if happens, um, anxiety is right behind it. 
And the deeper the value we place on something, um, the more anxiety we're going to experience when it's threatened. So the reason that this creates a lot of anxiety is because it's a high value event and we have no control and no certainty over what's going to happen over the next six weeks. So what advice would you have to help people manage their what ifs for a high value event? Yeah. So again, the, the first, the starting point is like, okay, let's be aware of where the anxiety is coming from, right? So like, that's the first part. Like we understand where it's coming from. Now, the second part is let's play it out. Like, so what if they cancel the event? So what if Boston is canceled? What would that really mean to you? Right. And that's where, um, that's where the, the variation is going to happen in terms of response. So, you know, for some people that maybe this is their first time running the event and, they're in really good shape and they really want to give it a go. And so it's going to be really disappointing for them not to have access to it. Right. So it's like then looking at what is being, um, what is really being impacted if the event doesn't happen. Right. And being able to then work through that. So part of it is like, I, I really think there's a, there's a fine line between disappointment and devastation mm -hmm. psychologically. So if it can't, if it gets canceled, yeah, like we're, we're all going to be disappointed. That's okay. Uh, the work is to not let it lead to devastation, which is this kind of lingering, long-term negative impact on our own identities. The, the flip side to all of this is, um, you know, this race has run 123 years in a row, and if it gets canceled, if it gets canceled, it's going to be for a very important reason, and we're going to need to broaden our perspective even further to recognize that this is for the health and wellness of not just athletes, but also communities throughout the country and throughout the world for fear of, you know, like um, spreading this, this pretty awful affliction that we're facing. Right. It's like so putting things in perspective. Back, totally. Like being able to say like, okay, it's, it's not like they're just on a whim canceling this thing. Like there is a very good reason if it is going to get canceled, we need to, to be okay with that and have some, uh, you know, like, like some, some awareness and some perspective on it. Right. Right. How would you how would you um, apply those same principles that we talked about that, um, you know, with the what ifs and, um, and and, you know, coming up with those strategies to, to, to address those what ifs to something more along the lines of, you know, somebody who's worried about maybe getting injured in the next few weeks or maybe they have been injured and they're worried about how that's going to play out in terms of their performance and their expectations. So something that's not as um, out of their control. Um, but something that may have already happened or they're maybe nervous about something happening between now and the race. Yeah, again, I think it, it starts a little bit with um, like then looking at what the goals are and the expectations are for the race itself and kind of looking at that. And again, Boston is this um, is this really interesting event because a lot of people go into it with very specific goals, right? They want to run really well. They want to PR or they want to at least Boston PR if they run it multiple times and for a lot of others it's boston is the the celebration right like all the hard work and qualifying now allows them to go and kind of not have any pressure on themselves to perform in any type of way so the starting point that that i work with with those athletes is first kind of getting a sense of what category in general they fall into you know is this a um is this sort of like a, a high performance event that they're seeking or is this more of like a celebration race that um that they're going into Again, knowing that each category is going to sort of set us up for a different set of um, of thoughts and, and beliefs, and it's often that first category of like, no, I want I want to be able to go there and 
and perform well. And I'm not going to perform well if I'm hurt or sick. And so again, that becomes the, the threat assessment. Like what if I get hurt? What if I get injured? What if I'm not peaking at the right time? It could be all kinds of variations that play in. Again, like the work is stepping back, understanding what that setup looks like internally, and then really focusing on those controllability factors, right? None of us can control the weather. None of us can control if it gets canceled. None of us can really control um, like how we, how, what kind of form we get into or, or if we deal with an illness or an injury per se when we get there. But we can control the day in and the day out, right? Like if we're doing not only our training, but all those ancillary things that are like small parts of training right? The strength training and the recovery and the foam rolling, and stretching. So like the more that we just focus on the process of the day-to-day and taking care of our bodies and our minds on a daily basis, that gives us the best opportunity to show up on race day in the way that we want to. Again, whether that's to push a high performance or to, um, to you know, like just really focus more on enjoyment of the, of the weekend. So controlling the controllables, essentially. That's it. I mean, we are athletes are so good at focusing on not only the controllables, but really the uncontrollables. (laughs) We we spend a we we right. We give so much time and energy to focusing on some of these things that like you you have zero ability to influence that. So again, I'm a big believer in like if you can really dial in the process of today, like what's on your schedule today? Can you execute that? Can you make sure you got your run in? you make sure you ate the way you wanted to? Can you get your recovery in? Are you getting good sleep? Are you managing your stress? If you do that day in, day out, there's no guarantee, but it gives you the best opportunity to show up in the form that you would like. I love that. I think that's a great reminder for um, anyone, not just runners. Um, Life is stressful, but if you focus each day on the things that you can do to be your best within your control, then that helps with sort of not allowing your mind to go to the bigger, the bigger issues that may be out of your control. Well, I think that also plays into the, like you kind of said, the, the type of people that typically are running Boston are people who like to be, have a schedule and be in control and have a checklist. And I think that gives us that ability to feel like we're in control and focus more on, on those, on those parts rather than what, you know, is out in the future that may or may not happen. So um, we have another scenario for you, and this is really common. And you touched on this a little bit when you talked about process goals. But how do you um, what advice do you have for a runner that is hyper focused on achieving a particular time goal um, to the extent that it, it could be almost causing them to not be aware of the process as much? And and we see this a lot with people who want to reach a certain time to qualify or, of course, um, people who maybe want a sub four or sub three. And what, on the one hand, it's great to have a time goal because we know there are many people that finish marathons and three, my first marathon was 359 56. That's not coincidental. Uh-huh. I wanted to finish at four. Um, and that was my first marathon ever. And I was so proud of that 56. And who cares if it was 401, but I cared. But, um, that was a little bit less of an obsession because it was my first marathon. But over the years, um, we've seen all kinds of time goals and sometimes it really works, but other times it can be a detriment. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and managing that? It's such a, a great, relevant, important topic, um, especially in the marathoning community. Um, I, I always start this idea with, the, you know, there was this 
really amazing study that was done a few years ago. Some economists from the University of Chicago pulled 10, almost 10 million marathon finishing times over a 30 year period. And they just simply plotted them right by where people finished. And not surprisingly, there was this huge difference in the amount of people who finished right before <laughs> a round number than who finished right after a round number. And the biggest one was the four hour mark. <laughs> there was something like, yeah, there, there was something like 167,000 more people who finished at 357, 358, and 359 than 401, huh. 402, and 403. I believe it. <laughs> right, it was huge. And, well, right? you look at race and results, too. Race results always go around, like, the Boston qualifying yeah. times. You can see all these, and even pacing groups are often are often designed around those times. You can see that those clusters around those Boston qualifying times at marathons as well. That's exactly right. And the, the study showed, like, anything with a zero or a five had that same effect. 355, 405, 330. It was across the board. It was really, really interesting. And again, it just, it shows that we make time goals really important and we make them matter. And it allows us to do some, some really great things. We can create training plans around them. We, um, we're motivated by them. It feels good to, to come under, not over those numbers. Now, the flip side, like kind of going back to your question is like the hyper focusing on the goal can become problematic. And the way I think about that, there's there's this difference that we call um, clutch state versus flow state, right? And the whole idea here is, you know, running is can be a flow state activity, right? Where we feel like really connected just to movement for movement's sake. And we're really connected to being out in space and feeling, you know, this form and this rhythm uh, without necessarily a care of the metrics on our watch, right? And when we're there, it feels pretty good, right? And I think anybody listening to this, any runner has experienced that in some way, shape, right? right? There's not a lot of pressure. The focus is on movement and process, right? Um, now, the difference is, is what we call clutch state. So clutch state is this psychological sense that we have to perform in a very specific way at a very specific time. And the, the thing about clutch state is, yeah, like, don't get me wrong. There is a time and a place in training where clutch state is really important, right? If you want to perform in a certain way, there are certain workouts that need to sort of be approached from a clutch state perspective, right? Like um, I have, you know, this tempo run at this pace and I really need to make sure I hit it. Oh, okay. That's a clutch state type of psychological experience. The problem is when all of training now becomes this clutch state yes. idea that is too focused or too hyper-focused on a time goal. And where I see most runners get into trouble with that is when they they start to look at their easy runs or their recovery runs from a yes, perspective just right? like i have i, I yeah that's it right like i have to run my easy efforts at 10 minutes per mile or, have, or, else. or, or like, i won't be able to hit the right pace in the marathon we see that all the time where they think their training pace is like, going to dictate their marathon pace and a lot of times we have to tell runners run without your watch like just take off your watch and go out and run your yeah. easy runs that we see that all the time all the I do too, right? And this I have this conversation so often and like really trying to educate people just on the psychological setup of this, right? Like when you look at it from a clutch state perspective, it's gonna create anxiety. And it's about like, yeah, taking the metrics off of those easy days, right? Tapping into flow state, letting easy runs really help with your aerobic development. They don't need to be hard. They don't need to service what your mind wants. 
they need to service what your body of that that is and then you know what also we see is that that then creates this um like psychological like they feel like they're not good enough that they are not uh, their training isn't going well that they're not going to be able to hit their goals when they don't hit the when they don't hit those time that that when they're in that clutch state they then it, it sort of spirals downward where they get um they, they think that they're not in in great shape that's exactly right i mean underneath all of this is this underlying narrative that that we have about who we think we are as people and who we think we are as athletes and if if we have this framework that sets up that I, I have to hit numbers or else the narrative is I'm not a good athlete or I'm not going to achieve my goals. It's going to create this undue pressure. And so often it's about like, like looking on, you know, just one layer underneath, like, okay, what is the narrative that you're telling yourself about the need to perform in a certain way? Right. What are you telling yourself about, you know, hitting certain numbers on easy days, certain numbers on hard days, et cetera. And, so much of, of this work, again, is like kind of digging into this narrative that we all have, right? I have a narrative. You both have narratives. All of our athletes have narratives about not only what performance means and sport means, but what like very minute, specific work. Sure. And especially when you um, are used to maybe maybe you're identified by your easy pace because you're placed into a pace group, for example. So you you become sort of the number has not only an attachment in terms of how you perceive your performance to be on easy days, but also where you stand in terms of a training group. So that also can, can cause some anxiety, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Right. If there's like this, um, this identity attachment to running in this certain group or that certain group, um, that's a big factor as well. That identity attachment is such a big part of it. So speaking of identity attachment, we're, we're going to, um, do a little pivot for a minute because we think this is an appropriate thing to ask. And that is social media. We, we've talked about this a few times on our podcast, um, because its impact on the running community is, is, has become very substantial, positive and sometimes negative. And sometimes I would imagine the flow state is, um, in running is interrupted by the fact that perhaps someone feels committed to posting their run on Strava um, or not posting, but their run is posted on Strava or um, they want to share their pace on Instagram. Um, what are your thoughts about yep. social media and its impact? I know this is a loaded question, but um, just, just talk to us and tell us what you think. Yeah. Well, the, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, just like we just came off of, um, you know, marathon trials weekend and man, thank goodness for social media because it was such a beautiful thing to be able to follow, you know, athletes and spectators and, and former pros and just the excitement around that event that was shared through social was just absolutely incredible. I, I love being able to, to follow. And so I think on the one hand, like there it is, like there's the beauty of, um, you know, of using social and it was about the stories. And about the people and about the work and, and not only like the success, but a lot of it was about hardship and, and heartbreak. A hundred percent. And then, and then um, also, so I, um, as a side note, the way social media has written in the New York Times, they, the athletes themselves used it to support each other while training for the trials, which we thought was so cool as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great way for these, um, you know, these folks who are training throughout the country and really throughout the world sometimes to be able to connect to other athletes, to their friends, to their community. So 
I love that aspect of it, right? It's a great way for us to, um, you, you know, to share community and to celebrate um, both when things are going well and when things aren't. But to like the, the underbelly of your question, I think is, um, you know, it, it kind of talks about the dark side of this too, right? And, and the dark side is that um, we can feel compelled um, to post great workouts and to get that, that external feedback that we're good enough. And we can often feel scared or afraid to post, you know, slow days or recovery days or workouts that didn't go well, because again, it, um, we're afraid of maybe how the world or our community sees us. And the hard part that I see with, you know, with Strava is if you look at Strava on any given day, somebody that you know is having just had a career run, right? Or they were out there crushing, right? And if you look at your run today, I had a recovery run and I was slow and I didn't feel good. And now oh, my buddy across the country is just out there crushing it today. If you don't have that strong enough internal sense of recognizing your own journey um, and where you're at on your own path and you're comparing uh, unfavorably to somebody else, that's where it can play into this, again, this underlying narrative of uh, maybe feeling as though you're not good enough. So again, it has to be used. Um, with, uh, I think with, with understanding and with this internal strength to say like, okay, it's an important way to connect. It's a great way to share community, but it's also not, I'm not going to allow it to tip me into any negative biases or any negative narrative I have about my own. Love it. Journey. I think it's yeah. great advice. That is, that is great advice. So going, going back to Boston, um, what, what tips, you know, we have a lot yeah. of runners and we see, and, and you know, it is a, huge race. And for some runners, it's going to be their first time and a lot of anxiety around it. How, what do you tell runners who have a tendency to get so nervous before races, big races, especially that they make themselves sick or that they, you know, how, what's the dividing line between the anxiety that we want to see because it gives us the adrenaline to help our performance and the anxiety that is detrimental to performance? And how do they, how do you manage that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, performance, um, activation. I'm going to call it activation instead of anxiety for just a second is it really is important for us in, in order to be able to perform well. And I often think about like when I see anxiety, whether that's with athletes or non athletes, it's usually not so much a, an anxiety problem as it's a lack of trust problem. Right. So when you see people who are really struggling with anxiety, when you pull back the curtain, really what they're struggling with is they, they don't have enough trust or enough internal skills to manage that anxiety to offset it, to counterbalance it. And then when that happens, when you don't have trust, anxiety can really uh, can really take over. And if it's too much, it can really tip uh, outcome and performance. So again, I, I go back and when it comes to, um, I, I call it like the psychology of big moments, right? Or I think about this like race day psychology. When we think about a race and a performance, there's usually like, three lenses that we see it through. So the first is, again, we can see it as a threat, right? We look at it as a threat and like, oh my gosh, I told everybody that I was going to run X time. And what if I don't? There's that what if again. And that's going to mean they think blah, blah, blah. I mean, you can see like how quickly this fuels a narrative, right? So the more it's viewed as a threat, the more you're going to feel anxious, right? The, the second way we can see a big moment or a race is we can see it as a challenge, right? Like, okay, like I've prepared for this. Um, it's going to be hard. I've heard about the hills. I've heard about the course, right? But I'm ready for that challenge, right? And I'm excited to take that on. So with challenge, from this challenge perspective, often comes excitement, 
right? And this this uh, internal idea that we can match it, right? I can match the challenge with my preparation, right? And then the third lens that we often see this through is like we see it as an opportunity, right? So like like Boston happens Patriots Day, it's one day a year, and so the opportunity to run the Boston Marathon is um, is very limited, right? And so for some, like that opportunity can feel like really exciting, right? Like here it is, the day has come, I'm amped up, I'm excited, I'm ready to go. But for others, again, it can, that opportunity can be viewed as a threat, right? Like, oh, it's, it's only one chance I'm ever going to have in my life and I, and I can't screw it up. So again, a big part of it is like understanding what that psychological framework is that people are looking at it through and then their ability to match the anxiety through the framework of uh, of trust and internal. So when you say trust, do you mean um, like some some things that runners can do to sort of um, counter that anxiety would be looking back at their training log, for example? Yep. Yep. So I make um, I make every single athlete that I work with uh, prior to a race do a, a, a trust exercise. And it um, I think about trust in three ways for athletes. So the, the first is like looking at something from this specific training cycle, right? So you start very kind of granularly. So let's look back at the training log and what can you trust about this training cycle? Maybe you can trust the amount of volume that you did or the intensity that you did or the hills that you ran or whatever it may be. There's something from every training cycle that you can look at and realize that, you know what? I, yeah, I'm really proud of that. And I trust that that has made me strong right here, right now. Then, then we pull back, right? We pull back just a little bit and we think about what is it that you trust about yourself as an athlete, right? So let's think about you across time, um, you know, in your athletic career. And that could be as a runner, that could be um, across discipline. It could be thinking like back if you were performing in your younger days, like what are the things you trust that you know to be true about who you are as an athlete and how you show up in challenging environments? So that's part two. And then the third part is we take a really broad step back. Like, what is it that you trust to be true about who you are as a person, right? Um, all of us have been through hardships. We've all faced obstacles. We've all been through difficulties. What do you know to be true about who you are and how you do hard things, right? Outside of sport, but in life in general. And when we go through this exercise and you really start to look at the things that you, that you trust and you know to be true, you start to like, you start to recognize that you can do amazingly hard things. And it sets you up for a, a way to be better prepared for any given race. I love that. Or any given life challenge, period, which is, you know, yeah. it's, it's always a parallel to other things in life. But when you're able to take those skills and apply um, those trust exercises to other challenges, I think that's very powerful. So talk. Absolutely. It's, it's this reminder that we can do really hard things and we are far stronger than we yes. are. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. So talk to us a little bit about during the race, um, you know, difficult parts of the course, difficult, you know, we, once you get to um, going through heartbreak hills, once we get past that and we're in the last several miles, you know, what are some tips or strategies during the race when we hit those challenging, those challenging parts of the race? Cause we, we all do at some point. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I really believe that like our words and our thoughts create the next moment for us and going into the race with this um, a little bit of like a mental game plan, right? Kind of having this idea of like, where do you expect it to be challenging? Um, everybody talks about the hills. 
Um, but I, I personally think that the hills are manageable, but what's right. hard is how you feel after the hills, right? It's like this, this meat grinder coming out of the hills and then still having, uh, having a ways to go. And so I think that's part of it is like, okay, like, again, this is why we back up and do some of the sports performance psychology work now, six weeks in advance. In your hard runs now, what are the narratives? What are the voices? What are the messages that you're telling yourself about? How your body is feeling about how you're performing and about what's going to come next and the more you can practice those now right the more they kind of become um credible and believable and well known the more you're going to be able to implement those on race day whether that's you know when you're coming out of the hills or um you know if you're running a different race and you, and you hit mile 20 and be prepared with the mental strategies um, by so give us an, an example. I know there's so many, but just just um, let's say um, I'm at mile 23 of Boston and uh, can see the sit go sign and it yes, doesn't seem to get any closer. Sit go sign's far away. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah, it's not getting any away. closer. Right. And the this the cobblestone a little bit, the potholes, um, not cobblestone, the, the potholes on the streets are, are I'm feeling them, and I'm thinking this really hurt. What what would you say to me if you were in my pocket? What would you tell me to tell myself? Well, I would wonder what the next thought is after this really hurts. Because like that can tip one of two ways. If it's this really hurts and oh no, I'm in trouble. I don't have enough gas to make it. Like, ooh, that cognitive appraisal is probably going to be detrimental to you being able to maintain pace or feel good down the stretch. If the thought was this really hurts and then the thought was, oh, I got this. I hurt so much in training. I can do this for a few more miles. Well, that probably sets you up for, um, for being able to like feel good and to like hit that flow state and to keep pushing forward. So this, we, we call this cognitive appraisal, right? We have this mental narrative, this cognitive appraisal of what's happening in our body. And that's a really common statement, right? In our minds, like, oh, this really hurts. So this doesn't really feel good. That got to me. Um, for all of our athletes, isn't really the problem hmm. thought. It's the thought after that. And again, we have a choice hmm. over what we do with that thought. If it's, I'm in trouble, ooh, not going to work. If it's, ah, I got this or some version of that, ooh, now we're talking. Now you have a chance to, to step in and, and to really keep performing well. So again, the reason we do this in training is those thoughts are going to show up for all of us, mile 20, mile 23, whatever it may be. If you practice how you're going to deal with them in your training runs, you're going to be much more able to. Um, to right. We like them. to say where the mind goes, the body follows. So if your mind is telling you you're going to crash, that's where the body's going to go. If your mind's going to tell you that you're you're strong and totally. you can do it. That's where your your body's going to go. Yeah, makes that's sense. Exactly that's great. It. Yeah. Well, Justin, you have provided so much information in the 40 minutes we've spoken to you, and. We're really, really appreciative of your time, and we know that our listeners will benefit. Um, can you share with us a little bit about um, Mind Body Health and what you do and how people can reach you? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm a clinical psychologist in, in Denver, and I created um, a company called Mind Body Health, which is a, a clinical practice. And that practice um, really works with it works with athletes on uh, race day performance or high performance. It also works with athletes just on general mental health. Um, you know, I, I have this idea that, you know, athletes yes. are people first and athletes second. And they are, yeah, they, they have everyday life challenges just like the rest of 
of us. Um, you know, stress, anxiety, depression, relationship problems, all kinds of things. So um, we always look at that perspective first. So the clinical practice is really set up to work not only with athletes, but to work with um, the, the general population as well. And um, we really, uh, we have quite a few clinicians now and, and we do a lot of work with a lot of different folks. The work that I'm most interested in really is working with um, with athletes, um, either on high performance stuff or just on general mental health. I see a lot of injured athletes because, um, as we know, being yep. sucks. It's really hard and it takes a mental toll as much as a physical one. So I spend a fair deal of my time um, helping injured athletes. Oh, do you do work yeah, um, only in person or do you also use Skype? Yeah, so uh, do a lot great. of work on telehealth these days. Um, it's just such a great way to be able to connect with people um, and people all over the world. You know, I have athletes in uh, in Hong Kong. Um, in Australia and like trying to coordinate times is a little tricky sometimes, but it's a great way for, for us to be able to touch base. So see a lot of people from all over the world and all over the Excellent. So how can all people get in touch with you? Yeah. So my, my personal website is just, uh, it's drjustinross.com. Um, that's where you can see some of the athlete mental health stuff that I've got going. Uh, there's a link to, uh, to a, an online course that I created on the meditation app insight timer. So people can check that out. The clinical practice is uh, mind, body, health. That's all one word. And then it's .us. And that talks a little bit more about kind of the integrated care model. All right. Well, we will put that all in the show notes. Dr. Justin Ross, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We are so appreciative of your time and your information. And um, we hope that you have a great chaining cycle. Yeah. Thank you again so much for having me. It was great talking with you and um, look forward to Will you to, be in uh, Boston, this, Boston year? this year? Yeah, this will be my third, uh, third time running Boston. Um, so I'll be there, you know, for the weekend and, um, such a, such a great time. We would love to. We will definitely be in touch. Um, we do a, we we do a podcast meetup. So, um, we would love to meet there or, um, at some other point in the weekend and we'll talk offline about that. We would absolutely love to meet you in person and, Best of luck with the last six weeks of your training. And um, we know you'll do great with all of your positive self-talk as well. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. <laughs> That's right. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You, you too. too. Bye-bye.